Good morning, everyone. We uh, missed you guys. We were gone the last couple of weekends. Most of that time was spent in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we were able to visit uh, our son and his family, including our only grandchild. Um, so the way we've been putting that is that we we go back and we visit Charlie and Andrew and Caitlin happen to be there too. But we had a great time. Last time I was in Tulsa, it was in August, and it was really, actually it felt like it was really hot. I think it was in the 90s. And uh, here it's going to cool down to 95 tomorrow. Um, but anyway, the, it, it's really humid. There's all kinds of mosquitoes, and for some reason they love me. But uh, this time the temperature was a lot cooler, a little bit of breeze, um, nowhere compares to the wind we get, so I call that breeze. And I didn't see a single mosquito the whole time, so that was pretty cool. But we missed you all, and we're glad to be back. Uh, Ridgecrest is home. All right, we're uh, back in Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 14. Hey, no. Uh, back in Romans chapter 12, let me read for you first of all verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verses 14 through 21, which is our passage for today. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, thanks, Wes, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then skipping on down to verse, verses 14 through 21, uh, in these verses we see part of um, that will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So maybe you recognized when Cameron read from Matthew chapter 5 that some of these instructions from the Apostle Paul overlap or um, reflect the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And obviously we could say, well, it's because they're from the same source, the Lord Jesus, and that's 
true, but uh, more than that, it's because the, the Sermon on the Mount is um, a reflection of what kingdom of life is like. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, those who have been born from above, born of the Holy Spirit, who are new creations, live in a pattern that reflects the Sermon on the Mount. And to put it in the terms that the Apostle Paul has been using in the book of Romans, those who live in this way do so because they have been justified. They have been made alive in Christ, set free from bondage to sin, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's why, by the way, Paul doesn't begin the book of Romans with chapter 12, but he uh, takes 11 chapters to work his way to this point because we need the gospel to be enabled to live in a way that pleases God. Cameron pointed out that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is an outline of um, the way that those uh, live who live to please God. But Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's the gospel, it's the power of the Holy Spirit um, that enables us to be in a new relationship with God and to be empowered by God so that we can, for the first time, actually please God. Not to earn our salvation, but to show that we really are those who have been genuinely saved. So that's what's going on here. That's the context. That's why um, uh, Romans chapter 12, frankly, is where it is. So we're calling this study Living Out the Gospel of, of Grace, and really that's the rest of the book of Romans, but that's what we're calling our study for today. All right, so... Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, the first thing that we see here from Paul in verse 14 has to do with relating with our persecutors. So it's living out the gospel of grace, relating with our persecutors. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And... I would just remind you from Matthew chapter 5, to turn there, and verse, uh, well, actually, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when other, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the Bible nowhere says, hate your enemy. It does say, you shall love your neighbor. 
but it was the Jewish religious later, uh, leaders in Jesus' day who uh, conflated these two, these two uh, aspects. Love your neighbor, which is biblical, and hate your enemy, which is not. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, etc. So, obviously, what uh, Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12 is an extension of Jesus's teaching. And the reality is Jesus teaches us an entirely new way. Why would the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus's day say, hate your enemy? Because that's what comes naturally to us. That's common sense according to the flesh. That, that resonates with us, with our flesh. Hate your enemies. Somebody hates me. Somebody treats me in an evil way, unjustly, unfairly, then I'm going to hate them. That's the way the flesh reacts. But Jesus teaches us an entirely new way, a way that takes the ways of the world and the philosophy of mankind and turns it on its head, turns it upside down. So he says, but I say to you, not just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. And don't hate your enemy, but pray for those who persecute you. And then notice why that is. In verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And that's what it means to be saved. There's only one Jesus. He is the Son of God uniquely. He shares the deity of God. God the Father has always been Jesus' Father, and Jesus has always been the Son of God eternally. And yet, everyone who comes to believe in Jesus, everyone who is saved, becomes a son or a daughter of God with a capital S. I'm sorry, a lowercase s or a lowercase d. We're not exactly like Jesus, but we are sons and daughters of God nevertheless. And that means that we reflect the character of God. We reflect the head of our family in this world. We uh, think like God thinks. We have the same values that God has. And we act by his grace as God acts. We, we do as God does. And notice this one specific thing that God does that we're called to reflect as his sons and his daughters. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God does good to all of his creatures, to all of mankind. 
God gives good gifts. He, he sends good things to the evil and the good. And the fact that the sun rose this morning, the fact that sometime in the past that I don't even remember, it rained in the Indian Wells Valley. All of these good things that come from God's creation, they come to all of us, and they're a reminder that God is love, that God is merciful and gracious and good, and he does good. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, that's easy to do. That's what the mafia does. That's what a lot of politicians do. That's what a lot of people in the workplace do. Sadly, that's what a lot of people in churches do. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, it's just natural human nature. And if you greet only your brothers, those who are in your group, those who are in your clique, those who you perceive love you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that word perfect does imply that we're called to be perfect. That's the goal. Sort of like an asymptote in math. That's what we approach, but we never actually get there. It does mean that perfect as in perfect, but it also means complete, impartial, we're not allowed to pick and choose our favorite areas of obedience to God. We can't say, well, I like loving those who love me. I like being kind to those who are kind to me. But loving my neighbor and being kind to people who do evil to me, not so much. Being perfect means being like God being kind and good and benevolent to everyone, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. That is why Christians are commanded to live this way. Jesus went on in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28 to say, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, be good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And of course, Jesus didn't just do this. He modeled it. We can look at examples in his life, but think of when Jesus was hanging on the cross, draining out his lifeblood in agony and pain and anguish and abandonment. And he prayed, Luke 23 and verse 34, for um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's Jesus praying for forgiveness 
for the very people who were torturing him and putting him to death. That is what it looks like in flesh and blood to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies. Think of the Apostle Paul. It's ironic, isn't it? Here is the Apostle Paul writing us these words. And at the time that Jesus was pouring out his lifeblood, at the time when Jesus was praying for the forgiveness of his own persecutors and murderers, Saul of Tarsus hated everything that Jesus was about. And Saul of Tarsus was, was present when Stephen, the first Christian martyr after Jesus, of course, in Acts chapter 7, was put to death. And Saul of Tarsus, who later on would become the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus was approving of what was being done to Stephen as he was being stoned to death. And so it's, it's amazing that that same individual would say, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Because this same individual was saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus alone. Paul had undergone, had undergone that same transformation of which he writes in the book of Romans. He came to embrace that same gospel of grace that he so masterfully unpacks in the book of Romans. He was filled with the Holy Spirit that he writes about in the book of Romans. And so in his conversion experience, Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus at the time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so as Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus took that personally. And he looked beyond the church. Remember, the church is the body of Christ. And Jesus saw Saul persecuting him personally. But here's the thing. Jesus forgave Saul of Tarsus. And then Saul of Tarsus was forgiven by many of those whom he persecuted. And he became a leader in the church. So there's Jesus, there's Saul of Tarsus. What about you? What about me? Remember what we saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10? In that passage, Paul describes each one of us. We're saved now, but we weren't born saved. According to our fallen human sinful nature, we are all ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, under God's wrath. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God forgave us. And so we are empowered and motivated to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This is a uniquely Christian way 
of relating with our persecutors. Then Paul goes on to talk about relating with those experiencing the ups and downs of life in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This goes hand in hand uh, with what he had already written in Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's not just some Christians. That's all Christians. All Christians are members of the one body of Christ. And by the way, the way that we give expression to that is by becoming members in a local expression of the body of Christ, the local church. But the point is that God does not save us and sanctify us and teach us and conform us into the image of his son in isolation. He does it as we walk in community with the body of Christ, with other believers. Some people have put it this way, that sanctification is a community project. You have an interest in my sanctification and I have an interest in yours. And this is rooted in how God changes our orientation when we're saved. Our orientation from being selfish and self-absorbed and isolated, thinking that the world is really about us at the end of the day, to being concerned with the interest of others. We read that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Paul wrote, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That means not only doing things for others, which even the unconverted can do from time to time, but it means not just doing things for others, but entering into their world so that their ups and downs are our ups and downs. It means really, genuinely, comprehensively looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because after all, this is what Jesus did for us in saving us. He entered into our world. He was looking not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And he did that in taking on human flesh in the incarnation and then living on this earth as a true man. And then, of course, dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God that was uh, directed and justly intended for us 
And then, of course, rising from the dead to give us hope. Jesus entered into our world in order to save us. And then we are called in turn to enter into the world of others, to reflect Jesus to them, to, to be like Jesus to them, to be God incarnate in this world. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean uh, Jesus in the full sense of the term, like we're little gods, literally, but Jesus physically has left the earth on, on the day of his ascension, and then he sent the Holy Spirit into the world to be his representative, uh, to be his, uh, the, the one who would take Jesus' place in this world. But then what does the Holy Spirit do? He doesn't float around in the atmosphere of the world, but he actually enters into us, believers. He regenerates us and indwells us and then uh, molds us into the image of, of Christ. And so we become, we become the, the incarnation of Jesus in this world as Jesus is literally, physically at the right hand of God in heaven. And as we enter into the world of someone else, we sympathize we rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not jealous. We're not envious because somebody else uh, is blessed at a particular time. And we weep with those who weep. We sympathize. We console. We, we comfort. We weep with them. That's the nature of what it means to be a believer, a Christian. Then Paul goes on to describe in verses 16 through 18, living in harmony with others. Living in harmony with others. Notice the first part in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. That's a great way to put this admonition. Um, I can't sing harmony. I would love before I die for someone who can sing harmony to teach me. So someone, you can take that as a project upon yourself. I'm not sure it's achievable, but I love hearing people singing in harmony, don't you? Uh, I love it when uh, we, we have a choir and um, we hear different folks up here, the, the ladies and the men singing soprano and alto and tenor and bass. Um, if one person at a time in isolation would, would sing their part, you, you don't hear the melody. It, uh, it's, sometimes it's even indistinguishable that that particular part that's being sung is actually from that song. But you know how it is. You, you take these individuals who are singing the various parts and then you put them together and they're all in tune and then together at the same 
time, in, in synchronization. They sing their various parts, and there's this beautiful harmony that comes out. And then you recognize the song. They have different voices, they have different parts, but you put them together and the whole integrated unity is better than if they would just sing by themselves, even if they sang the melody by themselves. We're familiar with that concept of harmony, but that's what we're called to promote within the church. So many times the New Testament acknowledges that that we're all different. We come from different backgrounds where Jews and Gentiles, males and uh, females, Scythians and barbarians, and some of us are more barbarian than others, but we all have different backgrounds and personalities and gift sets and likes and dislikes. But even though we're so different, we all love the same Jesus and we've all been saved by the same gospel and we've all been taught by the Holy Spirit to say the same thing in terms of um, the uh, important things, the higher points of the law. And so in our differentness, in our diversity, there's unity in the things that are most important. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Let that shine. Don't try to pursue a cookie-cutter kind of church where everyone has to look the same and dress the same and sound the same. Embrace your diversity, unless we're talking about diversity that violates the law of God. Embrace your diversity that's just part of your humanness and love Jesus together, love one another, be about the same thing, live in harmony with one another. But there are things that get in the way of that. The first thing is haughtiness that Paul mentions in the middle there of verse 16. Do not be Haughty. Haughtiness is mentioned in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's us by nature. We're prone because of our sinful nature to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And that disrupts harmony because we don't get along with each other. Or I want that part, even though really I'm not cut out for that part. In Mark chapter 12, you can turn there with me, here is what we're not supposed to be like. Mark chapter 12. Verses 38 and 39. And in his teaching, Mark's writing of Jesus here, he said, Mark 12, verses 30 and 39, 
beware of the scribes. So the scribes were um, one party within the Jewish religious leaders at the time who hated Jesus by and large. There were some exceptions like, like Nicodemus. But by and large, the Jewish religious leaders, including the scribes, hated Jesus. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like to look the part of being religious. They like the religious uniform. And they like greetings in the marketplaces. Hello, rabbi. And to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts They loved people to put them on a pedestal. And here's the point. Jesus said, beware of them. Not just them exclusively, but beware of the spirit of the scribes. Don't let there be a scribe in you. Beware of that. Beware of loving the praise and applause of men. Beware of loving honor from mere men. Beware of practicing religion to be seen, basically. And why would Jesus say beware? Because, again, naturally, That resonates with our flesh. And even though if you think about religious circles, maybe a lot of us wouldn't relate very well with that, but a lot of people do. A lot of people love to see a religious uniform. And even going outside of religious circles, think of how our society exalts celebrity. It's basically the same kind of thing. People love to put other people on a pedestal and then those people love to be put on a pedestal. It's the whole celebrity thing. Beware of that. Don't be haughty. Don't think of yourself as above anybody else, especially in the church. In the middle of verse 12, Paul says, but associate with the lowly. So do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. We're not above anybody else. Even those who were unsaved, we deserve the same fate of everybody who's in hell right now. The reason we're not in hell and the reason why we're not going to hell is simply because of the sheer grace of God. It's not because we're a cut above the rest. And then those within the church were saved by the same Savior and the same gospel and the same grace. So there's no room for pride. The um, wise man in the book of Proverbs wrote, uh, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's interesting how he puts together pride, B 
be not wise in your own eyes, and then fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Don't think of yourself as beyond correction by anyone. If somebody approaches you and, and says something like, hey, I was just wondering, do you realize that you seem to use the Lord's name quite a bit in casual conversation? Don't think, who are you to call me out? I've been, a, I've been in this church for 10 years and you just got here. You can't correct me. That's what Paul is writing against. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's just pride. And here's another hindrance to living together in harmony. Verse 17, repaying evil with evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You could imagine how that disrupts harmony. Because the reality is that even as believers, we are going to sin. If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him, even as believers, we have been freed from bondage to sin. Yes, we now have the Holy Spirit within us. We have a new nature, but that old sinful nature is still there. There's a war going on. The Spirit lust against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit and the two are against each other so that we do not do the things that we wish. And we find ourselves crying out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you know that we don't just sin in private and we don't just sin within our homes. If we're, if we're having a real community, body of Christ kind of relationship with each other, that means sometimes we're going to sin against each other. We're going to say something we shouldn't have said. We're going to say it in the wrong way at the wrong time. We're not going to be fair. Someone's going to do more than someone else. Someone's going to sit in your assigned seat in church. And the temptation is to repay evil with evil. And <clears throat> this is what's dividing our country right now. There's a lot of things dividing our country. I have to say that I believe that there is an element in our country that wants to divide our country and reform our country in some image that looks a lot like Marxism. But that's not the only thing that's going on. There is that. I, I do believe there's an element of judgment going on upon our country, which really has known extraordinary grace and mercy from God throughout our history. But... Another thing that's going on with our country, uh, in our politics, and in our society, 
Is this repaying evil with evil? Getting even. There's violence. That's going to be met with more violence. It's horrible rhetoric. That's going to be met with more horrible rhetoric. And it's sad that this is going on in our, in our country, but may it not take place in the church. May we be different than America because by God's grace, we're not repaying evil with evil. Notice that Paul does say here, uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 21, he said, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Honorable. Consistent with what is in God's holy nature. Consistent with what God has written on the hearts and consciences of all of his image bearers. Honorable. Even when someone does evil to us, Instead of thinking, how do I get even? How do I teach that evil person a lesson? The thought must be, what is honorable? What would our country look like if our politicians at every level actually acted this way? What is honorable? honorable. That's what we're called to do. And then here's the key to living in harmony with others. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It may not be possible. Somebody may, may be hell-bent on destroying you, persecuting you, advancing their agenda, whatever. It could be that with that particular person, peace is not possible. But, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. And this is a good reminder that in any controversy, in any strained relationship, there usually are two sides, and there usually is blame on both sides. I'm not willing to say always, because sometimes there are just absolute victims of evil, no doubt. <clears throat> but the vast majority of times, there's some blame to go around. And so what Paul is saying is, assume for the sake of argument that in this strained relationship, the other person is 99% responsible for the state of the relationship. And you are responsible for 1%. Take responsibility for your 1%. Go to that person and confess that sin and seek re reconciliation. Be a peacemaker. It may not ultimately heal the 
the re, uh, relationship. It may not ultimately bring reconciliation, but at least you will have done all that depends on you. Remember, Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. And then Jesus, in his work of redemption, brought us peace. He is our peace in terms of our relationship with God. We've already seen, blessed be the peacemakers. We're called to be peacemakers. And we are called to live peaceably with all. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, Hebrews 12 and verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Strive, work hard, pursue it. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Being a peacemaker, striving for peace, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is all part of our holiness package that we are called to pursue. And if, if there's not some fruit within that holiness package, if you will, that is the result of our being saved, then the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you won't see the Lord. Our holiness cannot save us, but we are saved for holiness. It's the fruit and not the root. And part of that holiness is being a peacemaker. It's not optional. Then, finally and fourthly, relating with those who wrong us. Verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So uh, one thing that happens within the heart of a believer, because we're no longer the center of the universe, and that's what we think, to some extent, to some degree, we think we're the center of the universe, and so our wrath, it's all important. But when we're converted and when we're sanctified, we realize, ah, we're not the center of the universe. Uh, if I am offended at the end of the day, who am I? And so we no longer substitute our wrath for God's wrath. We're able to let go of our wrath and leave it to the wrath of God because even though this is the day of grace, the long-suffering of God is salvation. There is coming a day of judgment and vengeance. That's why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And the Christian is to put his hope for ultimate justice in the hands of God and wait patiently for the day of the Lord. But that's not all. In verse 20, Paul goes on to say, to the contrary, and then he quotes from um, Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So we're supposed to actually do good to our enemy, enemies. We've seen that uh, already in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did when he saved us. And then what's, what's the goal? Well, we should do good to our enemies and love them and pray for them to glorify God. But, Paul says, there's also this practical hope. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, it's easy to read that and think, well, that's great. I'm going to do good to my enemy and basically bring about vengeance and judgment in the form of burning coals on his head. Well, that seems to be just a little bit out of step with what everything Paul has been saying. And I believe that it's true. That's not what Paul is saying. So I'm just going to rely on the help of Douglas Moo here, New Testament commentator and scholar. He, he writes, Most modern commentators have concluded that Paul views coals of fire, burning coals here, as a metaphor for the burning pangs of shame, the burning pangs of shame. Acting kindly toward our enemies is a means of leading them to be ashamed of their conduct toward us and perhaps to repent and turn to the Lord whose love we embody. And then what's the summary statement here? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what God does. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what we are called to do in the church, in our families, and in a fallen and dark and hate-filled world. May God help us to shine his light in the darkness in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our so great salvation. And we pray that you would help us to live in a way that brings glory to you, the God of our salvation. These things that we've just seen in your word are completely contrary to our uh, fallen nature. But we know, Lord, that um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So give us strength, we pray. Empower us by the Holy Spirit. Be glorified in our daily walk as we live out the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.